We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Dimitri Buas of TVBS. Hi there. And regular commentator, Ross Feingold. Good evening. And we'll be beginning today's show with the weather. Now, of course, if you happen to live in Japan, South Korea, Europe or North America, you may think we've got nothing to worry about here. But we live here, of course, and lows of around five degrees are a bit chilly. Now, the lowest temperature in low-lying areas of Taiwan proper on Tuesday morning was recorded in Miaoli's Daher village, where the mercury fell to 4.6 degrees. Now, the mercury fell to 6.3 degrees in New Taipei's Danshui district on Tuesday, and Daher village was also the coldest place in low-lying areas of Taiwan proper on Wednesday morning. But the mercury had bounced back a wee bit by then, and people that live there saw a low of 6.8 degrees that day. But it wasn't just the north, of course, as the lowest temperature in the south on Wednesday morning was recorded in Tainan, where the mercury fell to 8.4 degrees. It also snowed on many of the island's high peaks, which of course is nothing out of the ordinary for this time of year. But it also snowed on Yangminshan in Taipei, where some four centimetres of snow had accumulated there in some areas by 9am on Tuesday. Now, like typhoons, there were questions being asked by politicians and the general public alike about whether maybe schools should be closed if the weather's too cold or it's snowing, or people should just not go to work because it's snowing or it's too cold, Ross. Sounds a bit preposterous. I'm not sure what the public safety issue is, uh, whether in commuting to work or school or sitting in a classroom or an office simply because it, it's cold outside. Look, it is unusually cold by Taiwan's winter standards. It's several degrees below what we're, we typically experience in, in the winter. Uh, but I, again, I'm struggling to see what the safety issue was with commuting. And, and that's typically why uh, you would close schools during uh, inclement weather or, or, or offices. Uh, it's because of the dangers of being on the road uh, and, and traveling to, to work or school. Uh, I'm just struggling to see what the safety issue was here. Because closed schools did close, Ross, in Shinzu, some in one in Yangminshan, a couple in Taoyuan, a couple in the mountains of Taichung, with the police saying, you know, icy conditions on the roads are a bit wee dangerous. Yeah, but there's also, I mean, wetter, even icy conditions are not particularly unusual uh, for Taiwan. Uh, so, again, I'm still struggling with why they closed school. It seems just like uh, out of an abundance of caution, the politicians wanted to do this because they're afraid of getting it wrong. And Dimitri? Well, Taiwanese have their maybe their unique take on the cold. I met my neighbor decked out in a hat, scarf and heavy jacket, warning me about the chill this week. Yes, there he was sporting blue plastic slippers without socks and asked if his feet were cold. He, he just shrugged it off. Apparently, they were fine. So... Also here, the humidity makes the cold bite even deeper, making those early morning extra challenging to leave the comfort of a warm bed. And it's just not us. Adults, kids feel it too. So that's probably why there was a buzz about the Yangming Mountain Elementary School and, and many schools actually recent move to shutting down uh, for a cold break amid snow and icy forecast. Local businesses are even gearing up for a surge in snow tourists and stocking up goods like if there was no tomorrow. But 
it's not all fun and snowballs. The school decision echoes a larger sentiment, the need for adaptability in the face of nature's whim. So as we uh, bundle up and brave the chill, it's it's a reminder whether it's tackling roads or getting up for a flur- the flurry of tourists that will head to the mountains over the weekend. A little preparation and flexibility can go a long way. But I think that flexibility, Ross, went a bit too far when someone asked Gaoshung Mei Chen Chi Mai about weather closures because it was cold and snowing. Again, uh, there's no public safety issue. You just have to uh, bundle up, whether that's children or adults. Uh, it seems to be much ado about nothing just because Taiwan experienced uh, colder weather. I mean, we could make the same argument that if it was unusually hot, uh, then schools and offices should be closed for a heat uh, emergency as well because you, know, you might get sunstroke traveling on the way to work or school. So uh, I'm not too impressed by the decision uh, by the politicians to, to close schools or work simply because it was cold. Moving on now, Deputy Foreign Minister Tian Zhongguang attended the inauguration ceremony of the Marshall Islands President-elect Hilda Hain this week as a special envoy of President Tsai Ing-wen. Along with attending the inauguration ceremony, Tian also held talks with senior Marshall Islands government officials. Now, the Foreign Minister is saying that those talks focused on cooperation projects. Now, two days later, Hain expressed her government's support for Taiwan during a phone call with President-elect Lai ching And according to the presidential office, Hain reaffirmed the firm and long-lasting friendship between the Marshall Islands and Taiwan and stressed that the bilateral relations remain rock-solid regardless of the test of time or external pressures. And, well... It didn't all go quite well this week because there were questions over Tuvalu because on Sunday this week, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs released a statement in which it said it Taiwan cherishes diplomatic ties with Tuvalu and is willing to continue to enhance relations with the Pacific Island ally. Now, that statement followed comments by Tuvalu's ambassador to Taiwan who told the Australian newspaper the Friday before last that his country could sever formal diplomatic recognition with Taiwan in favour of Beijing after its election, which is taking place as we record this show today. Now, according to the Foreign Ministry, Tuvalian senior officials and politicians from across party lines congratulated President-elect Lai Ching-de on his January 13th election victory, and those same senior officials also sent reassurances that Tuvalu-Taiwan ties will remain strong. Fast forward a day, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs continued to expound on the matter, saying government officials in Tuvalu affirmed that the Pacific Island country will maintain formal diplomatic ties with Taiwan, and the ministry then went on to say that Tuvalu government clarified the ambassador's statements did not represent the country's official stance. Now, on Wednesday, Reuters reported that Tuvalu's finance minister was saying that his country expects to review its diplomatic ties with Taiwan after its election today. And if that wasn't enough, well, Taiwan's ambassador to Tuvalu on Thursday dismissed speculation that the country could sever ties with Taiwan following today's election there. And according to Andrew Lin, Recent reports that the Pacific Island nation will seek to establish ties with Beijing are based solely on rumours and aimed at undermining the relationship between the two sides. So, Ross, always lovely and jubbly with the Marshall Islands, but questions remain about Tuvalu. Well, you didn't mention the N-word, Noru, which... That's a dirty word in Taiwan now. Apparently it is now, uh, judging by the way some media referred to Noru after uh, it severed diplomatic relations two days after the presidential election. Uh, Tuvalu has long been at the top of the list for likely candidates to break relations. Uh, 
relatively speaking, because of its small size and small population, if we're in a war of checkbook diplomacy, relatively speaking, I emphasize that, uh, it doesn't take a lot of money for, for China to persuade Tuvalu to make the switch. China just needs to offer uh, more than Taiwan offers, and you probably could, could persuade Tuvalu to switch relations. Uh, its location is not as strategic as some of the other Pacific Island countries, and that makes uh, U.S. or Australia less concerned, probably, in putting less effort into Tuvalu. And the major issue for Tuvalu is climate change and rising sea levels, and they're, they're going to be looking for which diplomatic partner or partners offer uh, serious help, whether that's in, in cash or other types of aid. Uh, they do have a close relationship with Australia, but it's very interesting because the Australian foreign minister, uh, Senator Penny Wong, uh, she also emphasized, despite uh, Australia and Tuvalu signing an uh, agreement last year to bring, make their relations even uh, closer, that this is a sovereign decision uh, for the government of Tuvalu to make. I, in other words, Australia is not going to seek to interfere. So I, I, that was a bit surprising. Uh, but if Tuvalu should switch ties, it will come as absolutely no surprise. Uh, for the Marshall Islands, uh, uh, there's little expectation they'll switch relations simply because, along with Palau, they're, they're in a compact of free association with the United States, which gives the United States significant influence over Marshall Islands' decisions on this matter. Well, Taiwan can provide financial support for climate change, but it can't necessarily match the financial cloud of China in this area. Uh, but I would argue that this placed Taiwan in a delicate position right now. We are a member of the international community, but without formal diplomatic ties, China's narrative that Taiwan isn't an independent country gains ground adhering to the widely recognized one China principle for some country, not all of them. And for Taiwan, it becomes a balancing act, maintaining its global stance without resorting to an over-reliance on foreign aid to secure diplomatic loyalties. But when you consider the combined population of Taiwan's remaining allies, however, totaling just barely 39 million people, it's a stark reminder of the geopolitical challenges Taiwan faces on the world stage, particularly against the backdrop of a, of a global population of billions. And it also is a stark reminder of the delicate tightrope Taiwan walks in this complex international landscape, especially after the elections. So we were told before the elections that everybody would, everything would be fine. But now, how we, are we going to face those challenges? You're going to face those challenges uh, w without some diplomatic relations. That's where this is all heading. Uh, how quickly the remaining 12 make that switch? Uh, probably, again, as I said, there, there are a couple of countries like Marshall Islands and Palau that are really unlikely to switch anytime soon. Uh, but uh, including the Holy See or the Vatican, it's now 12. And I think we should expect that to drop below 10 um, in the near term or the medium term. Uh, the only reason it hasn't dropped faster, in my opinion, is during the COVID period, uh, it was more difficult for China to engage with other countries. And also, they couldn't have the the joint ceremony to announce that they've entered into diplomatic relations. I mean, the foreign minister of country X couldn't fly to Beijing and have a joint signing ceremony to announce diplomatic relations were established. Uh, so during the COVID period, there was only one that switched, uh, Nicaragua, and at the end of 2021. Uh, but now that COVID's uh, passed, we hope, uh, it, it looks like uh, you know China might return to the one, one or two per year business model for, for this. And uh, Taiwan needs to have a plan for uh, inevitably it's going to fall below 10. 
But Ross, what about Taiwan's ambassador to Tuvalu's comments about being Tuvalu seeking to establish ties with Beijing being based solely on rumours aimed at undermining the relationship between the two sides? There was also a report that these rumours and the source of the rumours was, well, in Nauru. The ambassador uh, of the Republic of China to every country that has diplomatic relations with the Republic of China says something similar right up to the moment that uh, diplomatic relations are terminated. And the same thing with the host country government, though they'll say that relations are great right up to the moment they they announce, they publicly make a public announcement that they're switching relations, which means uh, they'll They'll publicly say relations are great, simultaneous to negotiating with uh, the People's Republic of China, the terms of diplomatic recognition or the aid, frankly, the aid package. So it's not a surprise what the ambassador said. He's just doing his job. Uh, he might turn out to be wrong, though. But there may still be it's part of a negotiation between Taiwan and the, the other government, negotiation about the aid package for the next year. So they'd like to you know, scare each other a little bit. Uh, we're we're going to switch to Beijing. We're going to stay with Taiwan. But when it comes to, in the end, we need to look into how much Taiwan is willing to spend on, on aid, on foreign aid next year. And of course, Ross, when, before Nehru switched sides, which we didn't know about, but after he knew about it, an official was cited as saying the government did contemplate giving the island money, but apparently it was considered to be a waste of taxpayers' money. I think you could argue that uh, about all the countries that take Taiwan aid and then they subsequently terminated diplomatic relations. You say, you know, what do you get for it? You know, Taiwan... Uh, uh, to use one example, Honduras, where Taiwan was very friendly with prior presidents who turned out to be corrupt or drug dealers, uh, uh, but they would come here to Taiwan or Taiwan's president would visit and say what wonderful people they are. The same thing happened with uh, Guatemala, which just swore in its new president, but the outgoing president and people in his government have been universally condemned for their corruption and for trying to prevent a smooth transition to the uh, newly elected president, and yet Taiwan was calling uh, uh, former President Giammetti a, a, you know, a, a democracy partner and the bilateral visits that occurred uh, at the beginning or in the first quarter of 2023 were, were towards you know, making that bilateral democratic relationship stronger. Uh, so ultimately, this often is a waste of Taiwan tax stuff taxpayer money. I mean, I get the argument about having diplomatic relations is important for Taiwan making the case to the international community that the Republic of China is a sovereign country. However, uh, to, and I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but I, I think every dollar spent on Tuvalu or Nauru would be better spent on bullets for Taiwan's military. Let's say if one day we ended up with one or two uh, diplomatic allies, maybe the last one could be the Holy See. Uh, what will Taiwan be able to do? Uh, maybe it also fits the narrative of the government that because of China pushing pressure on on Taiwan's diplomatic allies, they would slightly maybe move forward with their plan to establish what they call their Taiwan consensus, being may, making Taiwan a more independent country. The only thing they cannot say is that they want to declare independence. That's going to be a challenge also for the government. Uh, following the uh, president-elect lie uh, election, I remember uh, President Joe Biden also making a statement about not supporting Taiwan's declaring independence. But once again, in Taiwan, 
uh, many try to maybe downplay that statement again, saying that oh he was he didn't mean to say that or he didn't say it in that way. So uh, yeah, that's going to be a challenge for Taiwan and how they're going to move forward. That's going to be a big question for the next four years. Well, there's no moving forward with countries that are going to ultimately break diplomatic relations again. Any money spent on them is going to turn out to be a waste of money. Uh, I think Taiwan really needs to think about a world where it has one or two or it has zero um, and you know, life will go on uh, that just means there won't be any countries speaking up or there'll be fewer countries speaking up for Taiwan at the World Health Assembly or the United Nations General Assembly but I don't think Taiwan's going to be in a is in a more dangerous place uh, in fact I'd argue Taiwan's probably in a safer place again like I said if you're not spending money on Nauru then hopefully that money could be retasked for more imper- important purposes in the relationship with the more important countries like the United States which although not formal diplomatic relations ultimately relations with the US or Japan or Australia are Taiwan's most important relationships and uh, it's too bad for the people of Nauru or Tuvalu or any of the countries that recently left or are contemplating leaving uh, I, I, I don't think it makes Taiwan any safer to have diplomatic relations with those countries. And talking of the U.S., President Tsai Ing-wen and President-elect Lai Ching-de met with U.S. delegations here in Taipei this week. A bipartisan U.S. congressional delegation arrived in on Taiwan on Wednesday, becoming the first by American lawmakers since the January 13th presidential and legislative elections. The delegation was composed of the co-chairs of the Congressional Taiwan Caucus, those being Mario Diaz-Balat and Ami Berra. Now, Berra and Diaz-Balat held talks on Thursday with President Tsai Ing-wen, like I said, and President-elect Lai Ching-de, at which they stressed the U.S.'s Congress's support for Taiwan and said America is proud of the people of Taiwan. They also explained that support for Taiwan in the U.S. is firm and bipartisan, and America is looking forward to continuing to work with the islands. Now, Tsai this week also met with visiting members of the U.S.-Taiwan Business Council in Taipei, during which she called for support for the island's participation in the U.S.-led Indo-Pacific Economic framework. Now, according to Tsai, Taiwan will continue to express its willingness to play a role in the initiative, and she hopes the business group can support Taiwan's participation. Now, the visiting delegation, including Business Council President Rupert Hammond Chambers and Keith Cratch, who serves as Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy and the Environment under Donald Trump's administration. Now, local media reported that Cratch failed to positively respond to Tsai's request during the meeting about joining the initiative, but the former Trump administration official did say the Business Council's visit to Taiwan is aimed at showcasing its support for tighter economic ties between the two sides. Well, uh, uh, it's not a surprise that foreigners are coming to Taiwan in the aftermath of the election, uh, or foreign dignitaries. Uh, I'm sure we'll see many such visits uh, in, in, during this transition period because you get to meet uh, outgoing President Tsai and incoming President Lai, so it's like a two for one, uh, two presidents in one location. Uh, but uh, uh, the IPEF part, I, I, I think, is extremely unusual because the U.S. Taiwan Business Council has zero influence uh, over the IPEF or who the members are, and the members of the IPEF. Uh, it's clear. They have vetoed Taiwan's participation because they don't want to anger China. They they already took some political risk 
in their relations with China by agreeing to sign on to the U.S.-led IPEF. Um, it's just so abundantly clear at this point uh, that that Taiwan is is not going to be in the IPEF. I'm very surprised that Tsai would even bring it up with this group. If she wants to bring it up, she can bring it up with a group of parliamentarians from one of the IPF members if they ever visit Taiwan. Although those Asian countries, uh, they keep a distance politically from Taiwan for fear of angering China. Uh, but she's talking to the wrong group of people. And if she really felt this way, she should have rejected the U.S. offer. Uh, you know, the well, we love Taiwan, but you're not in the IPF offer, which was this ridiculously named 21st. Uh, initiative on 21st century trade with Taiwan, which is basically the IPEF, but in a bilateral version between the U.S. and Taiwan. I really think President Tsai, and I've said this publicly before, um, I've written about it, I think Taiwan should have said, no, thank you. We want to be in the IPEF. We're not going to take this consolation prize of this 21st century initiative on U.S.-Taiwan trade, or whatchamacallit, or whatever it's called, with its loopy, long name. Um, and then the second point, I, I, we know the Ministry of Foreign Affairs loves to listen to this show, so I'll just ask them uh, very, very uh, directly, are you offering a donation to Keith Cratch's uh, newly established think tank at Purdue University, is, and is that why he's here? Is it what's it called? Uh, it's something about diplomacy, diplomacy and technology, uh, because Mr. Crouch was in the tech industry before he, he took a, a job in the Trump administration. And after uh, the Trump administration's uh, term of office concluded, he, he set up this uh, center. Some people might call it a think tank. It wouldn't be a surprise if Taiwan donates money. They're very grateful that Crouch, when he was under Secretary of State, visited Taiwan in September 2020, which uh, other than Secretary of Health uh, Azar, who had visited about five weeks prior to that was was really an extremely high-level visit uh, by a U.S. government official. So I think Taiwan's eternally grateful to Crouch. I'm just curious, because this is like, this, I think it's the second time he's come here in the past couple of years. I, I'm just wondering if he's looking for money. So, Dimitri, we won't talk about whether this chap is looking for money, but the U.S. officials coming to Taiwan and lawmakers coming for the first time since the election. Well, it helps. And the delegation also met with uh, opposition leaders in a move to highlight their support across the political landscape. So it's a good thing. But we don't know what was said behind closed doors, but we can speculate that they maybe reassured Taiwan again about any future military procurement beats and contact at the legislative level. Well, the situation is really similar to uh, the previous terms of President, uh, President Tsai Ing-wen when Congress members and U.S. officials visit Taiwan on a nearly monthly basis. The question is how this relationship will evolve in the months leading to the U.S. election. Some maybe would expect another visit from uh, the House uh, Speaker in Taiwan or maybe more officials and government officials in Taiwan. So I think it's just the beginning uh, we'll see uh, who will be sent to Taiwan for the inauguration of President uh, President Lai Qingde. And then from there, in the months leading to the uh, U.S. elections, we will see how Taiwan, again, Taiwan is used in the argument uh, in the U.S. election. And of course, Ross, there's been much talk that President-elect Lai Qingde chose his running mate because of her relationship with America. Clearly, uh, she has uh, Xiao, Xiao Bi Kim has a lot of achievements that she could be proud of during her tenure 
as a representative to the United States. Notwithstanding that the bulk of that time uh, overlap with the Biden administration, I think, and, and to go back to what Dimitri was just discussing, uh, I think it's uh, it's really clear that the Lai administration is going to make a huge bet through words and actions uh, on Trump being elected, just like the Tsai administration did throughout 20, uh, 2020. Gavin, you're shaking your head. Uh, unfortunately, the, the radio audience, the podcast audience can't see the look of disappointment on your face. So I guess we know where you stand on who, who you want to win the U.S. presidential election. But uh, for certain, uh, and that's because Republicans are more outspoken uh, about uh, China issues and, and their support for Taiwan. It's, ju- it's just a fact. Right? Republicans have more have a more energetic approach to this issue than, than Democrats do. And uh, I, I think uh, the Lai administration wants a Republican in the White House. They want Donald Trump in the White House again. Now, Ross, many might argue that Donald Trump in the White House could simply ring up Beijing and say, how much? Uh, well, I think that's a bit of an oversimplification. Uh, but what I do think is the issue here is that uh, a Trump administration, uh, analogous to what I said about uh, a few minutes ago about Republicans generally, Republicans specifically in Congress, but a Trump administration is, is going to be staffed in the foreign policy, national security, defense positions uh, by people who, who are very, very pro-Taiwan and are China skeptics or China hawks, whatever cliche you want to use to describe them. Uh, so I, I, I think, again, a, a lie administration would rather have a, a Trump administration part two than a Biden administration part two. Uh, so, Gavin, I think, you, you know, you just need to prepare for actions by the lie administration that indicates it prefers Trump. I was going to say, prepare for the worst. I think we're going to say that. <laughs> well, that's up for the American, up to the American people to decide. And, uh, uh uh, this show is not about uh, U.S. politics, but I'll just say this, right. Gavin. Gavin, if if the way, let me let me finish the thought. If the election, if the U.S. election was held today, I think it's very likely Trump would win. And Dimitri, of course, you might disagree with Ross because you're like me, a European. Well, yes, but it's so it's also too early to uh, to exactly understand how the situation will evolve after the election because there is a way. Of getting elected, getting elected is the force is the first uh, goal. But after that, um, the United States has its own challenges and, and and needs China to fix some of these problems, not all of them. So the Taiwan card may be played in a different way after the election. I think that card will be played by the Republicans uh, because they're so outspoken when it comes to Taiwan issues and more, as I said, more energetic about this. Uh, what what Dimitri just said sounds like uh, a talking point from Biden administration officials. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical, uh, but uh, you know, they will talk about the need to cooperate with China on certain issues like climate change and in years past, they talked about North Korea and Iran as well, but you know the focus now has moved to both Ukraine, Russia, and and uh, Israel, Gaza issues. Uh, but but uh, uh, when it comes to cooperating with China on certain issues, uh, I mean the Republicans and the people who are going to uh, staff a Trump administration should Trump be elected, they're just not there. That that's not their vision. Uh, it is the vision of the Biden administration. So that goes back to what I said earlier. It's not what a lie administration will want. A lie administration will want a U.S. government that really rejects cooperation with China.
And moving away from external relations and to internal relations, well, the KMT's Central Standing Committee on Wednesday of this week approved Legislature-elect Hang Guo Yu to run for the post of Legislative Speaker with lawmaker Johnny Jung as his deputy. Confirmation of approval came after the party's weekly Central Standing Committee meeting. And speaking during that meeting, KMT Chairman Eric Ju described Han and Jung as being a perfect match. As according to the KMT Chairman, Han serves as a lawmaker from between 1993 to 1996, making him the most senior of the newly elected legislators, while Jung is a familiar man with party affairs, having served as chairman of the KMT from March of 2020 to September of 2021. Ju also said the KMT will be a strong source of checks and balances on the DPP government in the new legislature and will also work with other opposition forces to back reform-oriented bills and show its support for reforms and progressive values. Now the newly elected 11th Legislative UN will be inaugurated on February the 1st and its first task will be, well, to vote for a Speaker and Deputy Speaker. If none of the candidates receive an absolute majority in the first round of voting, a second round will then be held. And if that happens, only a plurality of votes are required to become Speaker. And if that happens, only a plurality of votes is required to become Speaker. Now, the DPP has said it will continue to back incumbent Speaker Yoshi Kun and his deputy Tsai Chi Chung for another term. And the Taiwan People's Party, well, they're pretty much keeping tight-lipped about it. But today's China Times had a headline that screamed, Yoshi Kun is good buddies with Kerwin Jer and believes he'll keep his job, Ross. Good luck. Uh, I'll just say this to Kerwin Jer or, or the Taiwan People's Party Legislative Caucus. If you're going to make a deal with either the Kuomintang or the Democratic Progressive Party, get it in writing, <laughs> really, uh, because... Uh, not only is Cohen just subject to changing his mind, so are other people. So if there is, uh, if they, they are offering their vote in return for something such as support for specific legislation or anything else, they really should get it in writing and, and make it public. Let the public know what is the deal uh, that they entered into in order to give their support. Their support is key to somebody winning, Hong Yu or, or Yoshi Kun. I, I don't think the, the public really got to know Yossi Kun as a speaker. I mean, he, he's known from his previous, many previous jobs in politics. You know, he's, he's one of these DPP people who's had like every job conceivable uh, in local government, central government, uh, at party headquarters uh, on being on this committee or that committee. Uh, so the public knew him already because of his long career as a politician. But I, as speaker, I don't think the public really saw him doing much, and I, I don't mean that as a criticism. Just he had the luxury of uh, a majority. Um, you know, the DPP commanded a majority in the legislative UN, so they could really pass whatever they wanted, uh, subject to delaying tactics by by the uh, Guomindang. Uh, but we, you got to ask, like like Yossi Kun, like, do you really want to be speaker with a minority uh, of your own party? And I say that assuming that whatever deal they make with the TPP would not carry on to uh, support for every piece of legislation working its way through. That's why I said the TPP should get, get this in writing. You know, are, are, is it a one-off thing where they're going to uh, support Yossi Kuhn and get some loving in return? Uh, or is there really a, a legislative program going forward that they're going to work on together and both both parties, uh, legislators will support? Uh, they, I think that's really unclear at this point. 
Yeah, I would maybe support the idea of putting it in writing, but not in public. Because imagine something like what happened in November, having Ke Wenzhe and Yoshi Kun and then Han Guoyu sitting all together and having a press conference to discuss their future plans for an alliance or discussions. That would turn on turn out again into a fiasco. So yes, discussions, uh, maybe cl um, closed door discussions would be more helpful. But back to your questions about Han Guoyu, I think. Uh, The KMT decision highlights really the complex dynamics we saw during the elections when the candidates, the KMT candidates had to juggle convincing voters and reassuring their own supporters about their stance on China. And that's a delicate dance, especially for candidates like Ho Yi, who, who might believe that such dilemmas influence the failed alliance with Ko Wenzhe. Han Guoyu and his staunch supporters played a significant role in this political fiasco. Now, with the KMT really from their presidential defeat but gaining a legislative slight legislative edge the internal balance between different party visions will be crucial and it's evident that party members feel emboldened by their small legislative success and are ready to push therefore their agenda forward and looking ahead it's essential for the KMT to maintain a balanced approach possibly working alongside the uh, Taiwan People's Party for long-term stability now in this case Uh, Johnny Chiang's selection as deputy sector uh, speaker sorry, seems to be a strategic move in this direction, even though managing a personality like Han Guoyu will be undoubtedly very challenging, a very challenging task for the party leadership. Dimitri, did you just put Kuomintang and balanced approach in the same sentence? Because this is not a party known for balance uh, throughout its illustrious 100 plus years history. He was having an elderly moment. Uh, I still have hope that they can maybe uh, move forward, but with Han Goyu uh, and Johnny Chung in the same team, I don't think it's going to be very easy to manage a personality like Han Goyu, really. Well, good luck to Chairman Zhu, because uh, you know, it's clear Chairman Zhu, uh, Eric Zhu, Julie Lun, um, it's clear he wants to exercise some authority over the party caucus in the legislative yuan. Uh, he, he, uh, he takes the view that his efforts as party chairman made the KMT the largest party in the legislative yuan, notwithstanding that they don't have an absolute majority. And he thinks because of that, he gets to have some say-so over the party's legislative agenda, what they do uh, going forward. And I think a speaker, Han Guoyu, should he be elected speaker, is not going to agree to that. You know, he's going to say, I'm the top guy here with the, in the legislative caucus. Uh, sorry, Mr. Zhu or Chairman Zhu, you, you don't get to tell the caucus what to do. I get to tell the, talk, the caucus what to do. So... Uh, For that reason alone, I'm hoping the TPP will support Han Yu just so we can have some entertainment watching uh, Chairman Zhu and Speaker Han uh, Bicker. And of course, Ross, the KMT legislative speaker ballot, it began the week with a great headline in the China Times, which I believe Fu Kun Chi, the Hualien KMT chap who was an independent, is now back in the KMT, wants to run for the speakership. And the headline read, he wants to run for the speakership. Eric Zhu has a headache. Well, the headache there would be two uh, prominent personalities within the legislative caucus uh, competing against each other. Uh, and, and it would have been a headache for Drew to have to determine which one, because they can only put forward one candidate, ultimately, uh, they, the party would have gone to. And, and if he had gone with 
either one, there'd be criticism from from the other side. Uh, fortunately for Chairman Zhu, uh, Legislator Fu, uh, within a day, <laughs> decided that he, he would he would support the the Hanjiang ticket uh, for Speaker and Deputy Speaker. Uh, no doubt, he did extract something in return because that's just good politics. Maybe he had to, he had extra Panadol. Uh, well, let's not get into Fu's uh, a colorful past involving uh, the law or breaking the law and visits to prison. Uh, but but uh, I'm sure as a good politician, he extracted something for, for being willing to support uh, uh, the, the Han uh, Jiang ticket. And when we weren't listening to the KMT's bickering this week, we were listening to the Taoyuan Union of Pilots, which on Monday announced that its Ever Airways members have voted to go on strike due to an ongoing pay dispute with the airline. The statement came after votes in the ballot that began on December the 22nd were tallied up. Now, the ballot was initiated after Ever Airways rejected a request by the union for a mediation of a dispute over salaries and international allowance issues. Now, the pilots are looking for a base salary pay raise of more than 20% increases in sub and a rise in international salaries of around four US dollars. The Travel Agent Association this week slammed the pilots for voting to take strike action either during the Lunar New Year holiday period or the tomb-sweeping long weekend holiday. The union has said that passengers will given, be given 24 hours notice prior to its members walking off the job, but the Travel Agent Association says it needs to give the public at least one month's notice before taking any strike action, Ross. One month's notice uh, it wouldn't be a good strategy for the union to broadcast a month before uh, that they're going to go on strike. Uh, this is not the first time in recent years that uh, uh, EVA has had labor problems, either with the pilots or with the flight attendants. Uh, seems to be a recurring problem every every few years. One, one or the other is threatening to go on strike. Uh, if they want to maximize the impact, then yes, they would do it over Lunar New Year or Tomb Sweeping, which are heavy travel, overseas travel periods. Uh, but th- that's not good for getting public support. So if they want the support of, of the public uh, and they think their demands are reasonable and it's the company that's being unreasonable, uh, then they should not strike during the holiday periods. <laughs> Well, it's been part of the annual drama ahead of the holidays for some time. Back in 2016, China Airlines flight attendants launched a three-day strike driven by 96% approval from over 2,000, uh, more than 2,000 union members. And this move led to the cancellation of 120 flights, disrupting the travel plans for, of over 30,000 passengers and resulting in revenue losses of more than of almost, almost $300 million. And again in 2019, China Airlines again pilots took to a stand in a week-long strike amid the bustling lunar New Year period, and their grievance centered on excessive workloads, inadequate staffing, and a lack of transparency in pilot training. And the strike again impacted impacted 163 flights to 227,000 passengers and cost around 500 million. And then four months later, it was EVA Air flights. It was a 17-day strike, the longest to date. So I think it's too early to to really understand whether they're going to go on strike or not. But it's part of their, uh, I think, their strategy to call on the media and put the, putting the pressure on the government so that the government puts the puts the pressure back on the company. So it's a it's we are like 
almost two, two and a half weeks before the Chinese New Year holiday. So the pressure will keep mounting until they get maybe a cut, maybe not 20% increase, maybe 10 or slightly less. But their strategy is mostly aimed at the public now and the government so that these put pressure on the company. Also puts pressure on, on uh, the outgoing government. Uh, because the public will blame the flight, uh, the the uh, pilots as well as as the government, and uh, strikes are just not that common in Taiwan. Uh, there's a right to strike, and that, that's what the vote was. A you know, vote is required part of the process, and the pilots have agreed to strike. Uh, but very often, as Dimitri indicated, they, these things do get resolved through through negotiation, and chances are that'll happen here. You think it would be a surprise for all the pilots? to walk off the job, um, especially during holiday travel. Like I said, they would lose public support immediately if they strike during during holiday periods. And before we go this week, the National Immigration Agency on Wednesday announced the Chinese journalist who sparked controversy with comments about a disabled DPP legislative candidate has been banned from Taiwan. Now, according to the agency, Wang Jia'an breached the terms of his tourism visa by appearing on the night-night show with Hello and has now been banned from entering Taiwan for tourism purposes for five years. The statements came after Wang sparked outrage over comments he made during an appearance on the online talk show. Now, the former China Central Television journalist who has lived in Japan since being blacklisted by Beijing accused the DPP of using disabled legislative candidate Chen Chuan-han as a prop at a pre-election rally to gain sympathy from voters. Wang also drew criticism after attempting to imitate Chen's voice and for using a rather derogatory term for disabled people. Now, a producer for the Night Night Show with Hello has apologised on YouTube. He did that because the show is on YouTube. So the production team will handle content more carefully in the future. But my point here, Ross, is the fact I think they put him on the show because they likely knew he would say something outrageous. Well, that, that's part of his persona, why he has a big following in the Chinese diaspora, right? So this is a, a I guess you could call it a dissident journalist uh, who no longer lives in China because if he lived in China, he'd be in trouble with the authorities there. So he lives overseas and he has his style, which was on display uh, on this program and invited immediate backlash. But I, I think the the reaction from the National Immigration Agency and the Mainland Affairs Council in this case is, is a bit unnecessary, Uh Technically, yes, it's a, it was a violation of the terms of his tourism visa to get a few dollars to go go on a on a show. Uh, but you know, that kind of violation is rampant. You know, you, you could say every every uh, person who comes into the country for a business trip is working while they're here, but they don't have a working visa. They have a tourist or a landing visa. Uh, so we could get into those kinds of arguments. And, and you know, Gavin, we could probably find some things you've done that that are inconsistent with your status in the country, even if you're a permanent resident. Uh, so I, I, the response is a bad look because it almost looks like uh, it's interfering with, with freedom of speech. And Ross, do you think maybe if he'd gone on the show and said wonderful things about Liching during the DPP, the whole thing would have just been, oh, OK, forgotten. They wouldn't have been banned. That would have been nothing. Need I answer that question? No, I <laughs> wish you would, Russ, because you just you just said something about me that people might take the wrong way. Yes. Uh, well, what I meant by asking need I answer is simply that if you had gone on the show and said the Taiwan people have done the right thing by electing uh, Lai Ching-de as president for the next four years, 
there would have been no controversy and the government would not have banned him for five years uh, uh, on the on the basis of violating the terms of his tourism visa. So you're you're absolutely correct, Gavin, that that's how it would have played out if he had just praised the government instead of uh, saying the things he did, which were what he said was was reprehensible. You know, it's it's never appropriate to criticize uh, people over uh, physical or other types of handicaps. Um, so what he said was disgusting. Uh, but again, I, I think the response from the government was was ill-advised. Right. Well, there is a thing with Taiwan about when we denounce like disinformation or misinformation. We always try to control, the government tries to control the narrative about what is the correct answer to whatever question. Well, the question here is... Um, Whatever this person said, uh, it was not on TV, it's not on cable TV, it was uh, on YouTube. And I don't think regulations apply the same way for uh, comments and shows on, on, on the internet than on cable TV. But by pushing pressure and and asking the, the, the show producers to apologize, you actually... Um, gave more exposure to what that person originally said. We actually, the election is over, we already almost forgot what, what that person actually said. It was not very interesting. But it should be for the, maybe the Taiwanese audience to be able on their own to just, you know, uh, react and say, just this is just typical nonsense. But as a foreigner in Taiwan, we are on a, on a show, we, we talk a lot about politics. And uh, whether you're a foreigner or you're Chinese, and, and I don't know if you remember, but Chinese in Taiwan have a special status. They're not considered as foreigners like as, as we are. Uh, there is no point in trying to punish that person or uh, arguing endlessly about what he said or right or wrong. I mean, we all able to say, uh, obviously, this is just total nonsense. <laughs> Sorry. Long, long pause from Ross Feingold there. <laughs> uh, well, nonsense. I mean, we could use that word to just describe this whole situation. Uh, some people would say the, the entire this entire YouTube program that that Wong appeared on is just nonsense. Although it is, it is pretty popular w with its audience. Um, but uh, the whole situation does seem a bit nonsensical at this point. I mean, the guy is, Wong is like going on the war path on, on his Twitter account. So if anyone uh, has Twitter on their phone and reads Mandarin, uh, it's quite entertaining to read uh, how angry he is at Taiwan over this. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Dimitri Bures. It was great to be here. And by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can access all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.